Okay, Romans chapter 6. Um, when you read Romans chapter 5, you learn about God's design to justify the believer. We're justified through faith in Christ. Romans chapter 6 talks about a believer's new relationship to sin. And what I want to look at today are several different grace realities. Uh, there's probably three or four in general, uh, but they're stated many different ways. Um, I'm going to hold up my, my iPad. I don't know if you can see this, but I've got Romans chapter 6 here, and there's black dots all over the page. Can you see those? Um, maybe, maybe not. Uh, there are, in between chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 15, there are 25 different statements of grace realities that are true for the believer. I want to read these through, read through the passage, and stop at every one, and just give us an opportunity to see what these realities are. What these are is realities that are true about the believer, and these relate to our position before God and our relationship with sin. And I want to share this because this is very helpful to us when we find ourselves in a pattern of sin. Um, these are principles here that help us think rightly about how to uh, leave that pattern of sin and pursue Christ. So starting at Romans chapter 6, verse 1, um, I'll just pause when I come to any one of these realities and just make note of it and give us an opportunity to, to uh, look at a few things that are being said there. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's our first grace reality there at the end of verse 2. Uh, we have died to sin. What that means is we've died to sin's rule over us if you're a believer. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And there's the second grace reality in verse 3 is that the believer has been baptized into Christ Jesus. And the idea with baptism there is unity. There's a union with Christ and there's a oneness with Christ. We've been baptized into his death. Verse 4 tells us we have been buried with him. That's the next grace reality. There's a burial together with Christ been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we must walk, we might walk in newness of life. There's another grace reality there in the middle of the verse that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, and that is what enables the believer to walk in newness of life. Couldn't walk in newness of life before that, uh, but the reason why a believer can walk in newness of life, that we can live differently, is because right there in verse 4, Christ was raised from the dead. Verse 5, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, that's restating one of the earlier realities that we're united with Christ in his death. Um, the next part of the verse shows us the next reality. Certainly, we shall also be united in, with him in the likeness of his resurrection. So the believer is united with Christ in his death, dying to the former self, and the believer is united with Christ the ability to walk in newness of life in his resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So there's a couple of realities there. Our old self was crucified with Christ. That's restating what was stated in verses 4 and 5. And at the end of verse 6, we are no longer slaves to sin. That's another grace reality for the believer. Uh, that at one time, sin was master over the, believer, uh, the person, but at conversion, uh, that mastership had been removed. Sin had been deposed as ruler over that person's life, and Christ now assumes that position. And so they're no longer a slave to sin. Verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. And what that is freed from is freed from sin's rule over a person. So that's another grace reality there. Verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's another reality. We are going to be living with Christ in fellowship with him for the rest of our lives here on this earth and living with him uh, on his millennial reign with a new resurrection body and then into eternity as well. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Therefore, death is no longer master over Christ. Verse 10, for the, day, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that's Christ's devotion to God. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So one after another there in the, in the first 11 verses, there is 
one after another instruction and, and reality that, that confronts the Christian. Uh, there are several of them that, that are repeated, but there are, there are several basic categories. And, and one of those categories is that, that sin is no longer master over the individual, but that Christ is master over the individual. Uh, two other realities are that we've been united with Christ in his death, meaning that we've died to our former self in which our flesh ruled over us. And we've been united with Christ in his resurrection, meaning that we have been um, now have the ability to walk in newness of life. We can walk and look different than we used to because of Christ's resurrection from the dead. This is very helpful when you sit down, you bow your head to meet with God in the morning. One of the things you want to do is praise God. You want to thank God. You want to um, praise him and worship him in your time in prayer. And you also want to confess your sin to God. And whenever we confess sin, we, we begin to think about how we repent from that sin. And these realities help us think rightly about that. We have the opportunity when we're confessing sin before the Lord to say, um, the way, what I am confessing here before you this morning um, is not the man I was. I'm acting like that man, but I'm not that man today because of what you've done for me. And sin no longer is my master, and I have the ability to walk in newness of life. Um, we can worship Christ and thank him and praise him for coming to this earth and willingly entering into death for us so that we could die to our former self, the former person that we used to be. And then he could, having entered into death, that he could raise himself from that death so that we can walk in newness of life. And that's really helpful to us because whenever we're going to find ourselves confessing our sin, we need to have a tangible way to walk forward from that pattern of sin. And this is really helpful because it shows us that we actually do have the ability to walk in newness of life. And actually just reciting to ourselves that, that we have the ability to do that is half the battle. Knowing that we can actually walk in newness of life helps us walk in that newness of life. So I wanted to share that with you this morning. Um, if you get a chance, um, read through Romans 6, at least the first half of it, um, on a regular basis in your life. This reminds you, we need to be reminded, because sin is ongoing in our lives, we need to be reminded of the new relationship that we have with sin. I try to get back to Romans 6 a couple of times a month, make sure I read through it and remind myself of these truths because I, I need to recite them to myself and back to Christ when I'm, I'm praying and I'm meeting with him in prayer in the morning. So I hope that's encouraging to you guys. I hope it gives you some things to think about and uh, tools that you can use for uh, combating sin, battling sin, turning from sin when you meet. Let me pray and then we'll be talking about biblical decision making this morning. Lord God, you're a great God. Lord, and you give us wisdom and you um, give us commands and you give us a clear um, representation of what your will is in our lives, Lord, and we are so grateful for that. We're so grateful for you revealing yourself to us in so many ways. Lord, and as we talk about how we go about decision-making this morning, Lord, give me the words you would like me to say. Lord, help this to be helpful to these men. Lord, and give us... Um, just ways to be able to honor you better with our lives and the way we go about making decisions. Lord, thank you for your love for us, for your care for us, and for the fact that you are a God that wants to be involved in our lives, in our everyday practice, and are there for us, Lord. Such a sweet gift to have you as our Savior, Lord, in your name. Amen. So this lesson is on biblical decision-making. Um, I actually think this is a great spot for this lesson and build because it's kind of at the midway point and we have an opportunity to put into practical practice a lot of the things that you guys have been learning so far. And so when you think about um, shepherding your heart well, you can do that while, and while you're seeking out how to make a biblical decision. And if you're shepherding your family well, then you're going to go about interacting with your family in the right way as you make decisions. And if you're putting the right emphasis on the church, you're going to have counselors in your life that can give you good counsel for decision. And if you're striving for holiness, you'll be the kind of man that makes good decisions. So let's read Ephesians 5, uh, verses 15 through 17. Therefore, look carefully how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
Look closely at verse 17. It says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We must know the Lord's will for whatever particular decision lies because of these evil days. Whom should I marry? I must know what the Lord's will is. Should we send our daughter to that college or university? Let me discover God's will regards to going to college. We've been trying for so long to have a child, but nothing is happening. Are we doing what God's will is in this? Should we adopt or wait? These scenarios are all important, and there's many like them. We don't want to make the wrong decision. And if only we knew what God's will was before we made those decisions, we would be better off, right? I think that's the question I want to answer in the first half of this lesson today is, is it God's will that we know what God's will is before we make a decision? If the answer to this question is yes, then he would make his will so obvious to us in every single decision we make. Let me say it this way. If God gives us a command to understand the will of the Lord, and he requires that to be done in every decision we make, then he's going to show us a foolproof way to find God's will as we make those decisions. So I want to start today by talking about what scripture says about God's will. And then I want to talk about some man-centered approaches to finding God's will. And then we're going to close this lesson with a biblical process for decision-making. And so let's look at what scripture says about God's will. God's will in scripture comes in two forms. Prescriptive, what God has commanded, and decretive, what God has decreed will happen. In decision-making, we have God's prescriptive will, and his revealed will, or his prescriptive will, which is revealed, and his decretive will, which is unrevealed. So let's look at his revealed will in scripture. God's revealed will can be explained in three different categories. God, God's commands reveal his will. Turn with me to Matthew 7. We're going to look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Throughout scripture, there are details about what the will of, of Jesus' Father is and how we can enter into heaven. That's the gospel, right? Repent, believe. God has not hidden the gospel from us. God has given us a clear definition of what his will is as it comes to salvation. When we're talking about hidden versus revealed will, can you imagine if salvation was hidden? And when you think about most other religions, how they get to heaven is hidden. They've got to be good enough, right? Or some measure of goodness gets them there. Um, I have a buddy who is Sikh, and we've spent a lot of time talking about the gospel together. And I asked him, like, explain to me what like getting which it's enlightenment for them but explain to me how you get to enlightenment and he said well i believe there's many gods and they're pretty distracted and so i need to do something good enough to catch their attention so that they will take me to enlightenment and if not then i'll be reincarnated and get another opportunity to try um and i'm like okay well what what would you do to capture their attention he's like i don't know I'm like, well, that seems pretty tough. And he's like, yeah, your religion sounds better. I'm like, yep. Um, and ultimately, I mean, kind of the end of the story with that is um, he didn't want to give up the family relationships for what he knew was true in his head. Um, his heart wasn't changed. And so the idea of losing out on his parents um, and his mom, literally when he said one night, while washing the dishes, I think it'd be okay if I didn't marry a Sikh girl, did not talk to him for a month. Um, that kind of being pushed off for Christianity, it wasn't worth it to him. Um, 
and, and he knew what he believed couldn't be right. Um, God has revealed to us something that is clearly right, and that I'm so grateful for it. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this, is the will, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Here's an example of a revelation of God's will for the believer. The New Testament also provides many more, so that the believer, upon obeying these revelations or commands, can live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. He has not hidden these commands from us. He has revealed these to us, and these are God's will for our lives. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is a great verse. Every single man in this room should have this memorized. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will is that we be sanctified, and to narrow it further, we must abstain or flee from sexual immorality. God has revealed precisely what his will is for us. He has revealed his mind and his will to us through his commands. I think, you know, kind of as we close out this section, I think it's interesting how much you hear people try to find God's will in making a decision. And yet we don't meditate on the fact that his will is our holiness. And we don't think about what should our holiness look like. And and I want to be in the will of God and therefore, I want to abstain sexual immorality. I want to strive for sanctification. Um, when we're thinking about God's will, we need to parallel that with thoughts of holiness and, and a desire to, to be Christ-like. So that's the first category of God's will. It's his revealed will in his commands. Let's look at number two. Number two is God's broad intention for believers reveal his will. So let me explain what I mean by that. Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is similar to how God's commands for believers reveal his will, but these are more general or broad. Principles are stated in broader ways that may not tell you the specific action to take in any given situation, but you must live by God's broader intent in his revealed will for you. Not conformed, but transformed in renewed living. So the second category is to live under God's intent for your life. Um, And then the third category of God's revealed will is that God's plan for human history reveals his will. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan for not only human history, but even beyond that, for all of what he has made, is that everything be summed up in the person of Jesus Christ someday. This would include his return, his judgment of sinners, his millennial reign, etc. God's commands, his broad intentions for believers, and his biblically revealed plan for human history make up his revealed will. This is all knowable. This is throughout scripture. Usually when a Christian is trying to discern God's will for his life, he doesn't have these three three things in mind at all. Instead, he's wondering about a decision that needs to be made in a specific life situation that scripture does not speak to. Should I go to community college or ASU? Community college. Um, Should I buy a house or a condo? What is God's will for me in these ways? And this leads me to the second form that God's will comes in. His unrevealed will. Let's start in Proverbs. I'm going to read... Well, actually, turn to Proverbs 16. We're going to start with 16.1. 
The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. And then 16.3 says, commit your works to Yahweh and the plans will be established. And then 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. And then turn a page to the right to 1921. Many thoughts are in man's hearts, but it is the counsel of Yahweh that will stand. And then the last one is 2024. The steps of a man are from Yahweh. How then can man understand his way? Proverb acknowledges that God has an unrevealed will or plan for every single person. Notice these proverbs don't specifically say what it is, nor does it give any indication that it can be discovered before the decision is made. Proverbs leaves God's unrevealed will unrevealed. It is mysterious. When you're seeking God's will for the decision, before you make the decision, it is usually this unrevealed will, this mysterious will that you are trying to find. So here's the question that doesn't get asked by us. Is there anywhere in scripture, does the Bible ever tell us, teach us, or guide us on how we can know God's unrevealed will in specific decisions before we decide? You'd think with as popular as finding God's will is in decision-making amongst the Christian community, that that principle must be as popular in Scripture. But the honest truth is, the practice or concept isn't found in the New Testament at all. Believers in Jesus Christ never are directed by God through his word to find God's unrevealed will before they make a decision. If you re carefully read through Scripture references... God's unrevealed will, you will find the concept of, you will not find the concept of finding his will. It'll be notably absent. Please understand, scripture indeed does assume, assume that God has a plan or will for every specific event in every life. But those same scriptures also assume that his unrevealed will in those daily events in the lives of believers remain unknowable until after the fact. Let me give you an example. In, in the book of Acts, it says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers for me. I don't think that's in Acts. My reference is wrong. That I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Paul's desire to go to Rome and see the believers there, Paul knew God had a plan for his own gospel mission. Paul did write as if he believed he could know God's will for Rome before it happened. That's worded wrong. But did Paul write as if he believed that he could know God's will in Rome before it happened? Absolutely not. Notice what Paul does not say. He didn't say he was trying to find God's will about going to Rome. And Paul makes it to Rome. He'll know then it was God's will for him to be there. Paul made his plans, but let God direct his steps. And he would never have guessed how he would get there as a prisoner of a shipwreck. Pretty sure that wasn't what Paul had in mind. And James chapter 4 says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Consider what James says about future plans and decisions. James, and the rest of scripture, doesn't even come close to speaking about future decisions like we hear most Christians speaking about them today. The scripture says that we must, that we can't know what God's will is before um, the events happen. 
So if you want to go about making a decision the right way, what do you do? You can't start by looking for what God says that you can't know before it happens. You can't start there. If scripture is absolutely silent on trying to find God's unrevealed will before making a decision, where do you think we got this idea? I think we made it up. I think the pride of man lets us think that, hey, we can know something that God wants us to do before God tells us. Um, I, yeah. I want to actually spend a little bit of time talking about some man-made approaches to decision-making and finding God's will. Um, you know, I grew up in a charismatic home um, with a lot of over-spiritualizing Christianity. And, um, and in that, I think every single one of these man-centered approaches to finding God's will became ingrained in my life. Um, my parents, where are we at for time? Yeah, I can tell the story. When I was 16, my parents adopted seven kids, um, all from the Philippines. And if you sat down with my dad and had four or five hours for him to tell the story, um, he would tell you that there was a, that they, I don't know how my parents came to the decision that they wanted to adopt the kids from the Philippines, um, but they had both said, we want to adopt Filipino children. And so dad was working in the Philippines quite a bit at the time, and my mom was seeking out different adoption agencies here in the, in the States. And on one day, Dad reached out to a contact, and he found out about an orphanage in um, Metro Manila that had a family of seven kids that um, were looking to be placed. That same day, my mom called an adoption agency in North Carolina, and they said, hey, we know about an orphanage in the Philippines that has a family of seven kids that need to be placed. Um, it was the same family. And so my parents are like, well, that's absolutely a sign from God we need to adopt these seven kids. But my dad's like, I don't want seven kids. So... Um, he told my mom, that's way too many, absolutely not, that just sounds like a bad idea. Um, and then he went to bed that night and dreamt about how he would install a second water heater in the house. He then woke up and then dreamt about, I don't know, something else related to the logistics of having seven kids in our home. And he had three dreams that night about how to um, have seven kids in our home. And so he woke up the next morning and was like, God's telling me that we need to have these seven kids. Um, and then they started going down the path of adopting and would pray that if this wasn't God's will, that the doors to the adoption would close. And I have seven brothers and sisters. Um, most of them I don't talk to. Weird story. One of them came to the coffee shop on Sunday. I haven't seen him in 20 years, but that's a different um, so then they adopted the kids and things got hard, really hard. Uh, and like I said, I haven't talked to most of them. Uh, and they put their trust in those dreams and in the feelings they had in those moments that this is exactly what God has for them because of the signs that they saw that made them believe that that was a good decision. Um, they don't put their trust in God. And it's subtle, but all of their trust is in the process in which they made the decision, not in their Savior. And I don't think he is their Savior, but that's a different story. Um, and, and so when we start to think about these man-centered approaches, I'm going to talk about six of them, um, we have to recognize that these are man-centered approaches, and they actually start to drive our worship away from God to our approach to decision making. I think that's a good litmus test as we think about how we make decisions is, is my decision making process pointing my heart towards my savior? Um, and if so, then I'm probably doing something right. And if my decision making process is pointing my heart towards my decision making process, then I'm probably trusting in me, not my savior. Uh, which, that's a unscripted transition into the first um, decision-making example 
which is a purely pragmatic approach. Um, I am an engineer. You should have seen the decision matrix. I think I've emailed it to people when they've thought about whether they wanted to, what they want to look for in a house. I mean, I had this like super rad decision matrix for buying the house we have, where it had all these things, and Jenna and I rated it one to five, and it came out with a number, and then every house we looked at, I plugged it in, and it came back, and um, it was awesome. And if that had been the only thing we had used to be able to decide which house we wanted, it would have been a purely pragmatic approach, and, um, and it would have been a man-centered approach to decision-making. It was a helpful tool. I'm not gonna throw away the tool, because it was helpful, but um, it would have been purely pragmatic. And that's, that's something that is not a, a biblical way to go about making decisions. Um, it's not necessarily against the Bible, but if you're thinking about decisions in a way that puts all of the trust in your ability to research, your ability to, to analyze, um, then you're not trusting God in your decisions. Another approach is the lucky dip approach with scripture. I don't know if any of you guys have ever done this. I can say shamefully that I've done it in some major decisions where I open up God's word. And literally, 17-year-old boy trying to decide if I wanted to date my wife now, but I didn't know that at the time. And so I'm opening up God's word and I'm like, well, should I date Jenna? I don't know. Let's see. What does... 2 Kings 11 say, nothing about that. Well, let's try a different one. Um, and eventually something in there made me think that I could date her because we've been married 25 years. But um, that was not the approach <laughs> to going about making a decision. And for some reason, that's like creeped into the church as like a way to go about finding God's will is just opening God's word up randomly and thinking through. Um, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to preserve yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Um, so I'm not saying, I don't want you to think I'm saying don't go to scripture. But the thing is, I think that that approach is a very immature approach to scripture. If you're shepherding your heart well, and you're in God's word daily, it's going to be seeping out of you, and you're going to know what God's word says about certain situations. You're going to know clearly what his commands are. You're going to know what those principles were we talked about earlier. You're going to know from scripture where to go when it talks about, hey, I'm thinking about marrying this girl. What are the criteria in scripture of a marriage? Well, I shouldn't marry a nice girl who's not a Christian. I know that for sure because scripture's taught me that, and I've been in his word regularly. Um, though that's how you go to God's word and decision making not I'm going to randomly pick a proverb that makes me feel comfortable with the decision I just made um, I think I skipped all of my notes on that page another approach which sounds I mean sounds crazy except the story I told but it's the prophecy approach um, the extreme form is to consult someone in the church you believe to be a prophet and use the words uh, and ask them. Growing up charismatic, that was not uncommon. Um, my sister got into teaching music because a prophet came and told her she was going to be a music teacher. Uh, like, in, in, not in this church, but in a lot of churches, that's really common. Um, I think a more subtle way to do it is to say God spoke to me or I'm trying to hear from God about this. Um, I've heard that language in the last two weeks in our church. Um, it's subtle. It gets there. It comes in kind of from the back door. But it's also looking for prophecy in places where it's not there. Let's talk a little bit about what scripture says about prophecy. Um, in the Old Testament, you could be sure a prophet was not counterfeit 
if what he said was God's word and God's will. Deuteronomy 18.18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. Notice what God says about the prophet who isn't 100% accurate. And if you say in your heart, how may the word that the Lord has... How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and he will, you need not to be afraid of him. That man is a fraud and a liar, a man not to be feared. So-called modern-day prophets actually claim to not be completely accurate. In fact, usually the justification for them to be an actual prophet is that they were accurate on something at some time. The prophet that prophesied that my sister would become a music teacher was accurate because she followed his prophecy, but he was accurate um, at that moment. I don't know what he prophesied about me. I wasn't paying attention, um, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't coffee shop owner. Um, so... And that's inconsistent. That accurate sometime on some thing is inconsistent with what God's definition of a prophet is. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. That's Jeremiah 23.16. We don't run across many people who claim to be prophets in these circles. But we do hear those things that I said before. Let me give you an example of where the subtle things could lead you. I know someone who still trusts a lot in that charismatic, that the feelings, the emotional direction towards um, your interaction with God. And that person was living in, in sin. There were direct commands in scripture against what that person was doing, and that person was living in opposition to those commands. Um, and so I sat down with her and told her. And her answer was, well, I can't, that can't be right because I know what the Holy Spirit told me to do, and I know I'm in the exact place where the Holy Spirit wants me. And the counter was, why would the Holy Spirit contradict himself? And her answer was, well, well, those commands are broad for everybody, but they, he can have specific commands for me that are in contradiction to that. Um, that'll lead you to ruin. Like, we know God's will for our lives. This is the will of God, my sanctification. Um, the Holy Spirit's not going to tell a specific person to sin. Um, but she had gotten so messed up in her mind around what the emotional portion of these things are that it's, it led to ruin um, we, we need to be careful even with the subtle way we go about using that language uh, we need to be careful because of where it could lead now let's look at a couple of more common approaches within our church the peaceful approach this is common I had a piece about it this method, method assumes God communicates his unrevealed will through a sense of inner calm. I have a peace about this decision, therefore it must be God's will. It must be the right decision. Where is that taught in scripture? I, I, don't, I don't think it's anywhere. The fact is, the scripture never teaches of peace as a grounds for decision making. Uh, think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm pretty sure Jesus did not have a peace about his decision to go to the cross. I've never had so much of a not peace about a decision that I sweat blood before I went and did it. Um, Jesus did. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. No peace. Yet no one in this room would argue that it was a bad decision for Jesus to go to the cross. The decision-making process is man-centered. This one is. And though it claims that God gave us peace, that's not how God communicates. 
However, sometimes we can have a peace after the decision's made. Um, that's okay. If we're comfortable with, hey, we've made this decision, we've, and we'll talk about how to make the decision, but we've gone through a good, clear process, man, I feel really comfortable with the decision I made. Um, maybe a hard decision, but I feel really comfortable with that. That's different than God gave me a piece, and therefore I know that the, that decision is the right one. Do you get the subtlety there? I see a couple of heads nodding, which at least means a couple of people are still awake. Um, let's go to another one. I touched on this in my earlier story, the open door, closed door approach. Man, I catch myself still doing this, still thinking, well, that door is open and therefore, you know, that must be the right thing to do. Or, wow, that door closed, so um, maybe we shouldn't keep perse persevering in this. God opened all the doors for me to get this new job, so it must be his will. Or if God doesn't want me to do this, then I guess he'll close the door on me. What you mean when you say this is, if the circumstances for this decision make it easy for me to do, then it must be the right decision. Or if the circumstances for this decision make it difficult for me to do, then it must be the wrong decision. If that were the case, there wouldn't be a single missionary sent anywhere because sending missionaries is hard. Doors get closed all the time. And if you took closed doors as a sign that we shouldn't do this, then we wouldn't send. So we know that can't be right. And, and even then, it's what determines an open or a closed door. It's kind of an arbitrary thought. Uh, just because one step of the process was hard doesn't mean that it's an open or closed door. Uh, opening our coffee shop was the hardest thing I ever did in my life because it felt like every door at every turn got closed. And my wife, after we opened it, she's like, I'd have given up. Like, I don't know why you did that. Like, that was so hard. It was like every time I'd hire a cabinet guy to put in a countertop and then he'd just disappear halfway through the job. Or I, I don't know, it was a nightmare. Um, I like the shop now, but man, if I took the open door, closed door approach to it, Sagebrush Coffee would not be a thing. And yet, look at the blessing, at least in my life, of seeing Christians come there from churches all over the valley and interact with each other around God's word. It's been such a blessing in my life. Um, if Paul used the open door, closed door approach, what do you think he, when do you think he would have stopped being a missionary? Would it have been when he was beaten and put in stocks in Philippi? maybe during the riots of Thessalonica or Berea, probably when he was mocked in Athens. One of those would have been, Paul would have been like, okay, I'm out. I know I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, but nope, these doors are just closing way too fast. And for David, the door was wide open for him to commit adultery. It was an easy decision, right? So that must have been God's will for David. God controls every circumstance. Absolutely, every single one of them. But it is a speculative to say that certain circumstances mean God's want, God wants you to make one decision rather than another. Since the decision is centered within you, it becomes almost impossible for someone outside of you to question it. Beware of this. As a contrast, a lot of times what you hear in my home is don't make a decision until you have to, meaning pursue an opportunity and make a decision when the decision presents itself. Um, an example of this, Jenna and I were, which is, is old because this was where we were going to send one of our kids to kindergarten, and... Um, they're now almost done with high school. But anyway, when we were trying to decide where to send Eden to kindergarten, a lot of people recommended a specific school. And so we went and toured the school and met with the principal, and I walked away really feeling uncomfortable with that principal. Um, I didn't think it was the right place for our kids. 
Um, but it had like a 250 person wait list. So I'm like, well, let's put her on the wait list and make a decision when we have to. Um, and so let's just pray about it, take our time, which I'll talk about that in a second, but not rush to a decision. Just because I feel uncomfortable with the principle doesn't mean that this is the wrong school for us. Um, and so let's, let's just make the decision when we need to make the decision. And so we put her on the wait list and Jenna and I were actually in Austin, Texas on a just date vacation, just the two of us for a weekend. And I remember, I don't know why I remember this, but we were touring the Capitol and Jenna got a phone call from the school and Eden was number one on the wait list. She was accepted into this school. And so we're standing there and they had like 30 minutes to accept it or they'd move on to the next person on the wait list. And um, Jenna hangs up the phone and is like, Eden got in. And I'm like, well, I don't want her to go to that school. And she's like, yeah, me neither. <laughs> like, okay, cool. Well, now we have to make a decision. We have 30 minutes. We've been praying about it. We've been thinking about it. And she called her back and Eden didn't go to that school. Um, it, there was an element of there's patience in that decision, but we didn't say, oh, the door's open or closed. We just said, hey, let's make the decision when we have to make the decision and, and take our time to get there. Okay, so the last one. Where am I at on time? I am almost out of time. Sweet. Okay. The last one is a sign-seeking approach. This method looks for special events or coincidences before making a decision. Um, I'll just skip this because I am running out of time, but it's very arbitrary. Um, what you decide to be a sign is probably not it. I do want to spend the last 15 or so minutes talking about biblical decision-making. We've talked a lot about ways to not make decisions, and, um, and then I run out of time and never am able to finish this lesson and tell you how to make a decision, just leave you hanging. So it's probably unhelpful. Um, so let's talk about biblical decision-making. This is actually pulled from Joel James. Um, he's a pastor in South Africa that has a lot of great counseling resources. And one of his resources is on biblical decision-making. And I think this six-step process that he lays out is really, really helpful. And so I want to walk through it. Um, so the first step is when you're thinking about making a decision, you've got something before you. It could be something relatively simple, like what car should I buy? It could be something significant, like where should I work? Am I good? Is the job I'm in? right now helpful for my home? Should I look for looking for a new job? Um, there's a lot of decisions. I know if you Google it, we make something like 35,000 decisions a day. I'm not saying, hey, apply this six-step process to all 35,000 decisions. When you're trying to decide whether I want to go down lane, the middle lane or the left lane of this road, you probably don't need to go through these six steps. Um, you might want to not be disobedient to scripture in that and do something, I don't know, speed or not use your turn signal or something like that. But um, ultimately, these are for decisions where you want to take your time and make a clear decision. Um, and so the first step is to understand what, if God's revealed will, can influence this decision. Um, so if I want to be an obedient to God decision maker, the first place to begin is to make sure that what God has clearly revealed in his word um, lines up with what I'm doing. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God's revealed will is seen in both his commandments and his broad intentions. And it goes back to what I said before. We need to fight sin, shepherd our heart, be Christ-like, not ignore his revealed will in our life. We don't want to make a decision that causes us to sin. Step two is to pray for wisdom. Wisdom from outside of you. Scripture says, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Difficult decisions begin with prayer. We must ask God for wisdom from the start. As you prayerfully commit your works to the Lord, he will establish your plans. Oftentimes, he directs your steps down a different path than you planned. But that all begins with you humbly committing your decision-making your decision making to God and praying for wisdom. 
Remember, you're not praying for an open door. You're not praying for a sign. You're not praying for a word from the Lord. You're not praying for a peaceful feeling in your gut. Um, You're praying that God's wisdom will help inform your decision making. I think in today's world, this is an especially poignant thing because it slows down your decision making process. If you're going to take the time to pray for wisdom, you're not going to rush through a decision. And most decisions, you can, have, you can take your time. The third step is gather information and counsel. Counsel from outside of you. The naive believes everything, but a sensible man considers his steps. Proverbs loves careful, informed decision-making. You can look at Proverbs 14, 15, or 21, 5. Knowing all that you can about a decision is helpful as you weigh the decision. Again, one of the problems with just people in general today is we need to rush through these things. And yet Proverbs says that foolishness comes from being hasty in life. Good decisions are based in knowledge. And one, one note on this is, is listen to counselors and choose counselors well. Um, your counselor should be the right kind of believer, stable, mature, knowledgeable, biblical speaking, godly, obedient Christians. Um, don't go to someone that's going to affirm what you think you already want. Um, don't go to uh, people who may have worldly wisdom or no wisdom at all. Um, choose counselors well and then listen to them there's a difference between seeking counsel and seeking affirmation Um, you may have a decision in mind and you want to go one direction and your wife is not sure of that and so you go to a counselor that's going to affirm that what you were thinking was right so that you can use that as a tool against your wife Um, I think I've done that don't do that Listen to the counselors. I I know a few people who have asked me for advice and it was obvious they were looking for someone to tell them that that their thinking was right. Don't look for reassurances and be humble enough to listen to counselors. Step four, does the Bible speak directly to this decision? Oftentimes it does. A young believing man might debate whether he should marry a girl who is kind, exciting, attractive, and intelligent, but not a Christian. And yet 1 Corinthians 7.39 lays down a divine principle regarding marriage. A Christian is to only marry one in the Lord. A young man might seek signs or make lists of pros and cons, a peace, an open door, lucky dip, God told me. But all of that would only be a waste of time because of what God has revealed his will for believers in marriage. So does God speak directly to this situation? You may, you may not know whether you want to work for business X or business Y, but if at one of those companies the boss is asking you to cook the books you know clearly not to work for that business. You might debate over what job to take, but scripture is very clear that you must work. I, I, and there's some nuances to this. I have a buddy, who, when he finished his MBA, um, there weren't a lot of jobs out there. He got one job offer, one. He applied to countless. He had one job offer. It was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he was really struggling because it wasn't a good church there at the time. Um, He's like, there's a church. He visited two of them that were kind of recommended. Uh, One was a Mars Hill church, so that wasn't good. Another one, he said, it just wasn't, it was pretty surfacey. 
And so he's like, what do I do? And, and I, I told him, I'm like, Dan, you got to work. Um, I, I don't want to tell you to move to Albuquerque where there's not a great church. But if you have no other job prospects, you got to work. And so he moved to Albuquerque and ended up plugging into a decent church. It was better than he thought. It wasn't the best. But he ended up meeting a girl, and now he lives in England. And I don't talk to him anymore. Um, time zones are hard. Anyway. <laughs> but, um, the fifth step, how does the Bible speak indirectly to my decision? Decision-making becomes easy when the Bible says something like, don't steal. That's a divine directive on whether to continue at a job where you are asked to cheat your customers. But not every situation is as clear-cut. The Bible may not directly address your specific situation. Should I make this difficult phone call today or tomorrow? It doesn't mean that God's word in that case cannot still be a lamp unto our feet. But how do we go about that? Whatever decision we face, it is certain that God has at least indirectly addressed it in his word. We know the basic, do this, don't do that in scripture, but beyond that, we're floundering in deep water. Unfortunately, that ignorance of God's word leaves us thrashing in circles and grasping for breath in decision making. This is the part of the lesson where I encourage you to be in God's word daily, to shepherd your heart well, to know in reflexively how to respond biblically. Should I make that call today or tomorrow? Are you angry right now? Probably shouldn't make it right now. You need to confess your sin. You need to spend time praying. You need to prepare yourself. Or are you putting it off till tomorrow because you want to procrastinate because you don't want to do a hard thing right now? And that's sin. Well, then you need to confess that and do the hard thing now. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to make a decision and, and let sin creep in. And the will of God in decision-making is our sanctification. The will of God is our sanctification. We need to think that way. Um, and the last step is if you've sought counsel, if you've prayed for wisdom, if you've aligned your heart with God's word, and if you've sought God's word to see that there is no biblical command against this, then humbly do what you want. If all that is left is your inward desire, that's okay. Because your inward desire has been checked repeatedly and refined over and over by elements outside of you. And that's the key. That's where I started earlier. That's where I want to finish. Your decision-making process should be a form of worship. It should make you look to God. Um, your decisions should be a form of worship. When you make a decision, and it was a good decision, and someone's like, wow, that was a great decision, you should reflexively point that to God. Um, well, yeah, I prayed for wisdom. I aligned my heart with God's word. Of course it was a good decision. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, this is a surprisingly sobering topic, Lord, because so many times we can approach decision-making sinfully. We can allow decision-making to to foster and harbor sin in our hearts. Lord, and we can ignore that you put decisions in our path as a means of sanctification. And yet, we know that you want us to be sanctified. We know that you want us to be made in your image. Uh, help us to use every decision in our life to grow us closer to you to help us become more like you, or to grow our hearts towards you so that we love you more every single day. Lord, and use our language around decision-making to glorify you. 
Lord, you are the center of our lives. You are what we are aiming at. Don't let us um, use decisions to take us away from that, Lord. We love you. In your name, amen.